If you will, join me in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We have a lot to cover this morning. We're going to look at the entire chapter of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This morning's sermon is entitled Communities, Friends, and Enemies. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are neighbor, brother, and community. Now, as you're turning there, I'm, I'm wondering if anyone has ever thought the same as me about the story of Robin Hood. I'm sure all of us know it fairly well. Our 14th century heroic outlaw of English folklore. He lived in Sherwood Forest in Nottingham with his band of merry men. Now, there's variations of the story, but that's the one most of us know. Now, it's interesting to me what Robin Hood's purpose was. What is he known for? What is he celebrated for? Robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. And for this, Robin Hood is always portrayed as a hero. He's celebrated as a man who did for others what what they were unable to do for themselves. So for six centuries... We've told this story to children, we've seen it in movies, in books, in Broadway plays, you name it, Robin Hood has been celebrated. But I wonder if you've ever thought about it this way. Robin was a criminal. He took what was not his, and he gave it to those who it doesn't belong to. He didn't own it. He could not claim ownership over it. And those it was given to had no right to it. Robin was a lawbreaker to include the 6th, 8th, and ninth commandments. Have you ever thought of him that way? But remember, literature, film, theater, our culture throughout the centuries has portrayed him as what? A hero. So now that I'd be considered a blasphemer by every literature department in the Western world for calling Robin's character into question, consider also some modern stories, particularly film. Frequently, we are led to celebrate lawbreakers, the crafty criminals who steal expensive art or pull off great jewelry heists. Those who rob banks and casinos, all the while running from the law, the authorities. And we find ourselves cheering for them and hoping they'll get away. These are our literary and film heroes. Why? What makes the the Robin Hood type of legend so powerfully appealing? Why Why do we find ourselves cheering on the lawbreakers and experiencing relief in the end when they don't get caught? It seems so contrary to what we talked about last week, our innate sense of justice. Well, the 19th century pastor Charles Bridges wrote, A sinful world is a world of selfishness. We live in a world that is unmistakably full of oppressive governments 
exploitive businesses, and not least, individuals who simply take advantage of others. So this, I think, is why Robin Hood is so appealing to us. Because human societies are generally oppressive. And so we like to see someone working against that oppression in a way that supports the underdog. So Solomon pulls the tension that we've been looking at even tighter now. We long for justice and God is a just God. And remember last week he looks at this and he says, we want justice, but it's not where it ought to be. But God is just, so what do we do with that? And he pointed us to the final judgment. God is a just God, but what do we see here? He raises another objection. Look at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So the first three chapters, Solomon sets the scene by surveying the general contours of the human predicament, our associated issues with which we must grapple in order to make sense of finding meaning in this life. He pointed out the spiritual bankruptcy of living under the sun, a worldly life. Briefly, he highlighted the alternative, the life of faith in God. And then finally, we looked over the last two weeks at Solomon's argument for the certainty of God's providence and the final judgment, thus urging us to receive and to enjoy life as a gift from God. Now, just as we saw last week, Solomon's objection that we don't see justice and righteousness where we most expect to find it, now he turns to the reality that all around us is oppression. And not only in the courts, but generally in our lives, in business, in some marriages, in various relationships that we have, by anyone with power and Authority In any situation under the sun where human authority exists, the possibility of oppression exists. He wrote, And behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. In other words, the oppressed find no help, no comfort. Same sentiment we see in Psalm 142.4. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. This is the universal cry of the oppressed. So I want to pause right there really quick. This right here is the reason why you will never ever hear me preach seven steps to joy or four steps to an anxiety-free life, or five steps to sinlessness. If I do this, I'm making promises to you that cannot be kept because I'm assuming that the things we do are always, without fail, the determining factor in how everything around us turns out. So that's just setting all of us up for failure. 
What happens when you do the seven steps to joy and in the end you find yourself, well, joyless? What then? And we've created a false system that is very dishonoring to God. And it assumes that I do these things and in doing these things, God now owes me something in return. That's foolish. God doesn't owe you anything. And just because you do things doesn't mean everything else is going to cooperate with those things you do. So here's the deal. In this life, there will always be, as Psalm 27 tells us, those who breathe out violence. Now, these three words capture the powerfully damaging presence of sin, perhaps more than any other scripture in all the Bible. Imagine a human being who was made in the image of God, made for loving worship of the Lord and loving community with others, getting to the place where he has fallen so far from God's original intention that he actually exhales violence. The only people who don't think this is true are probably in the nursery right now. They're one and two years old and they simply don't understand people at that level. You don't have to look very far to see the dramatic damage that sin does in human beings. The high rate of divorce, the violence that is present in every major city in America, the prevalence of physical and sexual abuse of children, and something that is as common as the high level of conflict that exists in all of our relationships in one form or another. So we have to realize this as we consider what Solomon is pointing out and how significant it is to our daily lives because we could easily have a false sense that he's just dragging in the mud. He doesn't embrace the power of positive thinking. He doesn't embrace God's best so that he can experience his best life now. That's trash. Solomon points us to reality. That's not reality. Sin isn't about human beings being basically okay and just needing a little tweaking in order to be what we were meant to be and do. The damage of sin reaches into every area of our personhood, deeply altering what we think and what we desire. Consider this. After the fall of Adam and Eve, the very next generation was stained with sibling homicide. It didn't take very long after sin entered the world that we saw the very first murder. And then consider what Genesis 6-5 says about the impact of sin on human culture. Three chapters after the fall, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that. Can a statement be any stronger? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what sin does. Its effect is so pervasive, so comprehensive, that it influences everything we do and everything that we say. 
It causes us to think and desire and choose and say and do things that are the polar opposite of the way that we were created to function. So we don't actually love our neighbor. We're jealous of him. Or we see that he's an obstacle in the way of that which we want. Or we treat him as an adversary. Or we just simply ignore him altogether. And we don't love God with our whole heart. We put creation in his place. Solomon's made this abundantly clear previously. We'd rather have the temporary pleasure of physical things on this earth than the eternal satisfactions that can be found only in him. Sin causes us to place ourselves at the center of our own universe. Sin causes us to be obsessed with what we feel, what we want, and what we think we need. And so in this life, I'm the main character, and all of you simply have a part to play in that. I have the leading role. You might have a supporting role, but most of you are just extras. That's what we view ourselves as the main event. You see, sin causes us to set up our own little kingdom of one where our desire is the functional law of the land. And as little kings, we want to co-opt the people around us into the service of my kingdom purposes. And when they refuse or unwittingly get in the way of what I want, I rage against them. Sometimes it's the quiet rage of bitterness Sometimes it's the vocal rage of anger and condemning words. And sometimes it's the physical rage of actual acts of violence against another person. And this leads to the very thing that Solomon sees and lays bare. Oppression. The sinfulness of sin rests first and foremost in the fact that we are raging against God, our creator and sustainer but it also rests in the fact that we hold others in oppression. We place them under bondage. Under the bondage of our selfish desires and intentions to increase our kingdom, not God's. And that goes for us as individuals. That goes for us as a society. That goes for governments and on and on and on. Wherever there is human authority, there is an avenue for oppression. And so Solomon looks at this and he gives us a reality check. We can't solve this. We can't find comfort in five steps. There are no five steps to comfort you in the midst of oppression. So in reality, he's making it clear. Sometimes there are no easy answers. I've looked around and there's hurt, there's pain, there's sorrow. So how does he help us? He doesn't. He just moves on. Here's where he goes with it. Look at verses 2 and 3. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. 
Now, so far in Ecclesiastes, we've grown accustomed to Solomon bringing us to some very high ground. And then he brings us back to the valley of despair. But here, he just seems to take a flying leap off the mountain down to the bottom. He says it's simply better to be dead. No, you know what? Better yet, it's simply to have never been born than to endure the oppression of the world. So the possibility of doing what Solomon has continuously called us to do, namely to enjoy life, it seems very slim. Life is full of oppression. Power is on the side of the oppressors. The oppressed cry but have no allies. Their tears flow. No one comforts them. So the only conclusion that Solomon comes to is the happiest and most blessed of all men are those who have never been born. Glad you're here. Let me see you smile. (laughs) Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So here's his point. We're broken. We're sinful. We're selfish. We're envious. So our toil and our skill, our work, our labors are futile. Because even though we might achieve something great in this life, what motivates us more than anything is keeping up with the Joneses. And so at the center of all of our hearts, we want to be noticed. We want to be central. We want to be the focus of attention. And it's a driving force in every single one of us, regardless of our temperament. If you don't believe me, then I want to ask, what is pop culture? Popular culture. We define things as popular. And all it means is that we can have things that other people want. And quite often we have them because someone else led us to believe we needed them. Every one of us is victim to this. And what, what, is, what is style all about? That's in style. What does that mean? It means you don't do otherwise or people won't look at you the same. Because you're not conforming to what's popular. So, look, I'm, I'm not condemning it necessarily, but saying with Solomon, let's be honest about reality here. So he looks at it all and he says, how can you handle life on this earth when there's pain and oppression and everything seems to be falling apart and then no one really has anyone, any genuine concern whatsoever? Everybody under the sun just wants to stand at the center of their own universe. This is the world as Solomon saw it. And he points to two responses to this. The first is in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Crosses his arms. This is the lazy man, the sluggard of Proverbs. He does not work, so he devours himself. The phrase here in verse 5 means that the man who does not work uses up all his resources until he has nothing left to feed upon except for himself. 
But the opposite extreme is just as bad. He points to that in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Work brings reward. It's good. It's right. It existed before the fall in the garden. But too much of it brings trouble. It's better to have modest earnings, to have a restful mind and enjoyment of God's gift than to make large gains accompanied by constant anxieties. So this deal really is all tied up in in knots. When a man works hard and accomplishes much, his neighbor envies him. The man who envies cannibalizes himself. But hard work alone is not satisfying. When a man works hard and does well, his neighbor scoffs at him. It's all very well for you to talk. You have it easy. Well, perhaps, but remember, he worked hard for it. And no amount of hard work comes without some vexation. So it's better to have one hand of quietness, one hand of enjoyment and relative peace, rather than two hands of constant striving and earning and storing. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So the hardworking tightwad is lonely and diligent and has no reason for what he does. He puts on blinders. He never addresses the reality of his own heart. He simply buries himself in lonely toil and never enjoys the fruits of his labor. Now look at what he says next. This is, this is our focus. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Okay, so the world is broken. There is much sorrow And we've all tasted it, right? Who hasn't been wounded or wounded someone else because of our own selfish pursuits? Life is full of it, right? So here's a huge problem. Most people, when we get hurt, we don't instinctively run to community. We run away from it. When we get beat down and broken and hurt and angry and anxious and frustrated and sad, we get selfish. We run to our room, we lock the door. But the problem is that everything in the Bible points us in the exact opposite direction of that. Solomon's making it known here, in the midst of all of this mess, when we're living this life, we absolutely need each other. We desperately and in a very deep way need each other. Man is built for community and loneliness is a great evil. But life together is satisfying. 
It doesn't mean it's not hard, but it's satisfying. It's fruitful. It prevents harm. It keeps you warm. It defends. It builds unity. So a man can work hard, make a pile of money and possessions, but never stop to ask the very basic question. Why am I doing this? He piles it all up. He has no one to share it with. He can't marry or have children because that's responsibility away from his work. He can't have friends because all of their motives are suspect. And so community is non-existent for him and he lives onto himself a miserable, lonely life. Community is dear. God created us for relationships and a, a, a curse resides on all things which prevent men from forming relationships. So let me give you a few examples. Have you ever tried to work through some significant sin in your life on your own? No accountability, no transparency, no one calling you to repentance. How's it work? Not too well, right? It's a weighty, sometimes unbearable journey, and we need others to come alongside us. Yes, we need Christ, but Christ has appointed a means to point us to himself. Community. Community is his means. Because here's the deal. Profound thought coming up here. The thing about your blind spots is you can't see them. You can't see your blind spots. So if you can't see where you're weak and prone to fail, how are you going to keep yourself from falling? Real, godly, gospel community has enough love to confront you, to tell you when you're in sin. Look at verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he has been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Here's this point. Our culture is filled with institutions and organizations. And at the top of these institutions and organizations, there is a leader. Here it is the king. What happens is this. People become unhappy with the quality of their life or that leadership. And in alignment with what we've just studied, probably a lot of that has to do with the condition of their relationships, their friendships, their family. Their community is not coming together. It's not well organized. They're not well connected. It's lonely. It's isolated. It's depressing. It's sad. And it's highly individualistic. So what they tend to do then is people try to find a reason for that. Why? Why do I feel this way? Why am I isolated? They try to figure out, why is it that my life looks like this? Why is it this way? Now, we only have two options when we start to investigate why we're unhappy with the quality of life. We can put the blame on others, or we can put the blame in here. What's our greatest propensity? Out there. 
just like Adam in Genesis 3. We're going to find somebody else to blame for the condition of my life and the unhappiness that I live in. And what inevitably happens is that people look at institutions because they're more visible and easy to blame. So they blame the leader. I'm not happy. I don't have friends. My life is not going well because it's his fault. We need a revolution. We need to overthrow. We need a new leader. And what happens then is there will be a moment of criticism against organizations. They tear down that leader. They tear down that organization. They thrust up some young guy who's got all these great ideas and this naive optimism and hope. Pretty soon, he's the king. He's put his plan in place. But what happens next? The next guy comes along and he says, you know what? I'm not happy. It must be that new king. We need another one. And so the cycle continues on and on and on. This is where children blame their parents and students blame their teachers and principals. They're obviously frustrated about something, but rather than asking if the problem is in here, they assume the problem is out there. They blame it on the institution and they go on the attack. That's what all of us do. This is important for us. I would like to suggest that the reason you don't like your job is not because of your boss. The reason you may not like your church all that much right now is not because of me. The reason you may not like your family is not because of your mom or your dad. The real reason why you and I fall into despair and loneliness and isolation is because the problem isn't just out there. The problem really is in here. It really is. And some of you will even come to church and sit there and leave bitter because you don't get the attention you were hoping for. And all the while, other people sitting right next to you are thinking the same exact thing. And so rather than talking, there's a propensity to just blame someone else. And many groups, many churches and people and movements are held together by what they're against rather than what they are for. And all they can agree on is that they don't like that guy whoever that guy is. So they get rid of him, they get a new one. They don't like him, and the cycle just keeps going. Am I saying that your boss, your pastor, your parents are perfect? No. I'm saying, uh, am I saying that they haven't made your life a little painful from time to time? No, I know I've made your life painful. I fully recognize that. But your life is your life, and it is under your jurisdiction. Don't waste all of your time blaming others and blaming institutions, blaming organizations and leaders. Changing one person without changing the hearts of everyone else involved is really silly. And when people are dissatisfied, it's easier to blame someone else than it is to blame your own participation in that culture and be an agent of change. It is. It's easier to blame than to do. Jesus says in John 15 something that is really beautiful. That he has come and he extends to us a hand of friendship. He is our friend. God has reached out his hand in friendship to us. I, I told you before, the real problem is 
sin. Sin disconnects us from God. It disconnects us from each other. Jesus comes to die for our sins. He says, man has no greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his whom? His friends. Jesus came to die for my sins, for the sins of all of his people, because he loves us and wants to take away our sin, that we would be reconciled and that we can be called his friends. And what Jesus also enables us to do is to forgive the sins that are between us. We don't need to be angry. We don't need to be bitter. We can actually forgive each other. That's what Ephesians 5 says. We should forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven us. That Jesus forgives our sin by dying on the cross and rising for it, and he makes us his friends. Then he calls us to be about friendship with others, forgiving those who have sinned against us and embracing those who need to be loved. And the practical outworking of the gospel is not just that I'm a Christian and now connected to God. It's not this independent, individual, isolated relationship where it's me and Jesus. There's a horizontal aspect to this thing. You and I are, and it's in our mission statement, it's on the front of your bulletin, we're a family of faith. A family. I am your brother. Congratulations. We're family. So we should be and can live together in a way that someone without the gospel cannot because they don't know what it is to be what we are to do with the sin that gets in between them. They don't know what to do with that. But Jesus came to forgive that and to take bitterness and anger and unforgiveness away so that we can be continually reconciled to one another. Paul calls this the ministry of reconciliation. Now look, some of you I know are very connected. Some of you have relationships and you get community. You understand it. You have friendships. People truly know you and you know them. You love them. You get into disagreements with them. You reconcile and you do life together. And because those relationships are driven by the gospel, you look around and realize that you don't see other people having those same kinds of relationships. It's a blessing. It's a gift from God. It's a cord that is not quickly broken, as Solomon says. But some of you are completely disconnected. Church for you is like your life. It's something that you observe, but it's not something that you actually participate in. And as a result of that, the quality of your life suffers. Your understanding of Jesus' work is diminished. Now look, I I don't want to say this out of uh, a sense of creating guilt or legalism or shame, but I I want to invite you to the same thing that I've experienced in my life. The beautiful gift of people who love Jesus. That's your wealth in this life. That's what Solomon is calling us to. And in our culture, in our suburban me and my family and my house and my stuff culture, this is incredibly hard for some of us. Friendships, community, being hospitable, spending time together, talking about real life, not just sports and weather. 
sharing your struggles, your pain, and how God is at work day by day transforming your life. And here's how I know that some of you are stuck on this. Because you don't even experience it in your own home. I know there are some of you that I could ask, what's going on in your husband's life right now? How is the Lord at work in him? What is he thinking in his prayer life, in his sin struggles? How's your wife's time in the scripture? What is she learning? How is she growing? Where are your kids at in their understanding of the gospel? What fruit have you seen in their lives? And the response is, I don't, I don't really know. I'm not sure. Brothers and sisters, look, I'm not trying to beat us up. I'm really not trying to pile weight on us so that we walk out of here feeling like failures. But listen, we've got to be honest. Community is God's means to our flourishing in the gospel. We can't just throw it out. We need it. We have to have it. And if not, we shrivel up and die. Without community, we die. It was interesting to me that the most popular demographic for Facebook are people between the ages of 35 and 55. Why do you think that is? I think it's because we desire community, but we don't actually want to share all of our life with one another. And so we get a little taste of it when we can share bits and pieces here and there and look at others and they look at us and we have it all figured out that way. But actually sharing life, where I struggle, how I sin, where I need help and prayer, that's a whole different thing altogether. But we've been called as believers in Jesus Christ to do life together. We just did a whole series on this at the beginning of the year, so I know this isn't new for us. We're called to walk deeply together, to confess our sins to one another, to challenge each other, to grow one another. We beat this to death, right? But the question is, why do so few of us still not have relationships like this? Can we, can we be honest? If, if not with anyone else other than yourself right now, be honest. Do you have these kind of relationships? Some of you do, I know. Some of you have that with me, and I thank God for it. But where are you at here? Why do so many of us find it so difficult to walk in this kind of deep, spiritual, life-giving fellowship with other believers? I think Solomon answers it for us. He gives us at least four enemies of community that I want to look at very quickly, and then we'll be done. Back at verse 4. I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, question. Have you ever found yourself celebrating someone else's failure? No? Is that just me? All right, I'll take that one on the chin. But you know what that is, right? That's envy. Envy will always derail your chances of deep, meaningful relationships because you're assuming that you deserve whatever God has given someone else. A gospel community is a call for me to rejoice when you rejoice. For me to delight in the good that comes in your life with you. Not hope you fail. And when sorrow enters your life, I grieve with you. I don't delight in it. I don't hope for it. That's gospel community. That's what we're called to. 
So the wickedness of envy in our hearts is an enemy to community. It will derail it every single time. Second, verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What's this? Laziness. Laziness is an enemy to community. Bottom line, relationships require effort. Your marriage, your parenting, your relationships with coworkers, neighbors, your church family, these all take work. And laziness kills community because it sits back and hopes that community will just happen. It doesn't. It doesn't. Community is proactive. It's creating and building up and making intentional opportunities. Third, verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Another community killer, dissatisfaction. If you're never satisfied, if you're never content with where you are and what God has given you and what he has done in and around you, you are going to be an enemy to community. Why? Because you're skipping over the beauty of the reality of today for whatever you think is going to come tomorrow. So when Solomon wisely calls us to enjoy life, you don't really know what that means. Look, I've been there. Man, I've had some busy weeks where I've just thought, wow, once all of this is off my plate, I'll finally be able to get to these other things that I love and enjoy and have been putting off for a long time. So then what happens? Next week rolls around, and alas, it's busy too. Parents, I realized this very early in my daughter's life. We're prone to this. And I talk to dads whose daughters and sons are getting married, and they say, take it all in. Don't wish it away because it goes so fast. My girl is two. And you know how fast two years goes by when you have a little one? She's sweet. She's wild, but she's sweet. And I love these days. And I pray I don't grow dissatisfied for what's to come next. Our ever longing for what's next will kill community. Enjoy life. Enjoy friends. Enjoy the gifts of God in a way that He has intended for His glory. If we don't, we kill community. And lastly... Verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Last enemy of community, work. Again, yes, work is a gift from God. It is not a curse. But just like food and drink and sex and money and a whole slew of other things... We can do it to excess and it becomes our slave driver and it completely kills community. Listen, if you constantly hear yourself saying you have to pass up opportunities for community because you have to work, there's a problem. I'm not telling you to quit your job and I'm not telling you to not work hard. But maybe you need to get a little more creative with your time. Maybe you need to look at your schedule and be a little more intentional about how you spend those hours away from the office. Look, I know it's hard. I know you're tired. I know it's difficult, but it is worth it. It's good for you. You need it. And without it, you will die quicker than if you don't have those extra hours at work. 
So how does it work? Where do we start? I don't want to try and convince you to join a small group or be proactive about getting together with other believers because ultimately it isn't an issue about what you're doing or not doing primarily. It's first and foremost an issue of the heart. The greatest friend of community is union and communion with God. I cannot and will not seek your welfare for your good if I am not first and foremost united to and communing with Christ. The greatest thing I can do for you and the greatest thing you can do for me, the greatest thing for our community is a zealous pursuit of Christ. That brings Him the greatest glory. And listen, this is not something that you look at and just say, try harder, do better. Why? It doesn't work. It doesn't. That's moralism. And it doesn't work. It's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ taking on our sin and giving us His righteousness that we are now free to walk in the newness of life. Some of you are afraid of community because you think you need to clean up before you're ready. If that's you, you don't get it. You can't and you won't clean yourself up. And to try to do so dishonors God. Stop trying to make yourself acceptable for others. Run to Christ, cling to the cross, and realize that in Him you are accepted by God, not condemned. And as a result, you have brothers and sisters who you can share life with. You can admit to them you're broken because they are too. It's a requirement of being here. You struggle, and sometimes you fail. And look, if this is you, if you've failed at community, look to Christ. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God will give you greater union and communion with Him. That you would seek Christ as you, as you look to Him as your greatest portion in this life. And doing so, that the gospel community would be real and vibrant for you. For all of us. Wherever you are on this spectrum as a believer in Christ, rejoice that He invites you to the table to share communion with Him and with one another. Celebrate that Christ has called us to participate with Him, that we can enjoy life because of Him and that we have one another unified in Him. That's what we're going to celebrate here in just a moment. And we praise God for that. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in this great reality that you have given us one another. That you have given us community as a means to constantly point us back to the cross. That you have given us a people of refuge a people who, like us, are broken and admittedly need Christ like us. And we pray, God, that you would help us all to freely admit and walk in that and continuously run to the cross. That we not be seeking to 
clean up ourselves, that we not be seeking to try harder and do better, but that we rely upon the sanctification that comes by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the renewing of our minds, by the power of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to live out this great implication of the gospel. Help us to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but that we would stir one another up to love and good deeds and that we would do so by the only means by which it's possible, greater union and communion with Christ. We pray that you give that to us. We pray now as we come to the table that you would give us a greater delight in Jesus, that we would rejoice in the reality that we participate with him, that you have done a great work in your people, that you call us to live life together. I pray you help us, Lord. I desperately pray that you help us to do that, that you help those who feel as though they failed in this area, You give them a greater desire for Christ and that the overflow of their joy in Christ would be greater advances toward community. Help us to walk in this, Lord. Help us to delight in this. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Christ. We love you, we delight in you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.